Good morning, church. If you would open with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. What we find here is Paul is towards the end of his third missionary journey. So we had right read the beginning first six verses where he's traveling around Asia Minor making a tour of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. He's going from modern-day Syria, modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, and then he's got his sights set on Jerusalem. And if we think of Luke and Acts as one work, right, written by the same author, Luke being the Acts of Jesus, Acts being the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Jesus at one point in Luke sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He is intending on heading there, and Paul is doing the same thing here in this third missionary journey. But where we're going to focus on the sermon today is on Paul's sermon that he preaches, where he fixes his eyes on the elders at the church of Ephesus, and then he actually asks them to meet him in a town called Miletus, which is about 30 minutes south of Ephesus. And these elders come here, and he preaches a sermon to them. And what's interesting about it is that this is one of the, this is the only sermon in Acts preached to believers. Isn't that interesting? Most every other sermon is preached to non-believers, is evangelistic, but this is for believers. And it has all the marks of an emotional goodbye as well. Paul speaks to the, the elders at Ephesus as if he's never going to see them again. He knows he's going to die for preaching Christ. And so he says goodbye. But because this is preached to believers, this is preached to elders, right? Those who are responsible for the health of the church and representative of the church. The way he speaks to them, we are wise just in the same way we do with Paul's letters to let this sermon, to let Paul's words to this church shape our hopes and our expectations for this local church, right? And not just this church, but the church universal. So, We're going to focus in on this sermon. Let's pray, and then we're going to read the text together. Heavenly Father, as we gather together to study your word, to sing your word, to pray your word, I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate it by the work of your Holy Spirit. We are asking you to awaken us, Lord, to make us alert and attentive to what you are doing in our hearts and what you are doing among us. Thank you for these dear people. Thank you, Lord, that they know their need of Christ enough to come here and gather. Lord, I do pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and yours alone. We love you. Thank you for this privilege of worship, and it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Read along with me. Acts chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, 
I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And verse 28 here is where we're going to focus our time and attention. So y'all read this along with me and take note of it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I know, I now I commend to you God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's Word. On November 17th, we finished up our Wednesday night um, youth and children activities upside down as the ministry, as the children's director that I led here for many years. But what's real exciting is Redeemer has a new director of children's ministry. Jawan has started. He's doing a great job. He's been teaching, and it's been such a blessing for me to sit under his teaching on Wednesday nights. But for the last one of the semester, he gave me the great privilege to finish up the book of Daniel. And so I was in Daniel chapter 12. Those of you who work with kids, or um, our teachers especially, will kind of know that towards the end of the semester, things start to get a little haywire, right? The days are getting shorter, it's a little darker outside. I don't know if it's the barometric pressure or the full moon, but the kids that night, and this is every last night of the semester for the seven years we've been doing Upside Down, these kids could not sit still or pay any attention to anything. So I'm preaching from Daniel chapter 12, and the main point, the angel comes to Daniel in Daniel 12 and says, oh man, dearly loved, take courage. Daniel could face the hostility of exile, right, because he was loved by God. And the kids were poking each other. They were doing bicycle kicks in the air. They were talking about soccer practice on the back row. And these are little bitties. These are K-4 through first graders. I just couldn't get their attention at all. And what I've learned over many years of teaching kids is that it's my responsibility to get their attention. It does me no good to fuss at them or just go into the like, controlling lockdown. That works, but at what cost? And so I'm just like, all right, I've got to get their attention somehow. So I stood up on this pew right here in front of you, and I, I just, I, I, I didn't yell, but I just raised my voice and I said, you are dearly loved by God. And so you can take courage. Now it backfired because they were so distracted by me getting up on the pew that then they weren't listening to me at all for the rest of the lesson. But it came from a good place, right? The message was that important that I knew I needed to get their attention. Redeemer, I have this question for you today. Where is your attention right now? What are you paying attention to? What compels you, your heart? 
What are you distracted by? Where is your mind wandering even now? Is it the three-year-old wiggling on your lap? (laughs) Is it all the things happening in life? Where are you? What has your attention? In Acts chapter 20, Paul's attention is fixed on the church. It's fixed on the health of the church and the glory of God through the health of the church. So that's why we're going to focus here on verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. But in the whole chapter, we see Paul's attention on himself, evaluating his own heart, knowing where he is, and his attention on the health of the church. Verses 1 through 6, which Wright read, he's traveling around, visiting all these churches. His attention is on the parakaleo, helping them, encouraging him. It's a beautiful word in Scripture because it means more than just comfort or encourage. It actually means challenge, come alongside and push. It's where we get one of our most beautiful words for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does for us? Comforts us, encourages us, but also urges us on, pushes us towards what is good and right and holy in Jesus. So that's verses 1 through 6. And then 7 through 12, we have this humorous but kind of sad story of Eutychus, right? The word that's used to describe Eutychus uh, shows us that he's probably 8 to 12 years old. And it's, it's the first day of the week. It's their Sunday night worship service. They're there taking communion. It says they're breaking bread. There are lots of candles. Smoke is kind of filling up the place. And Paul just keeps preaching. <laughs> I mean, it's pushing midnight. And you're 8 years old, and you're sitting there, and I'm like, i got to get some fresh air. So he sits in the window... And the poor dude wakes up dead three stories down. But what's beautiful is that Paul's attention then shifts from preaching the Word of God to on this boy's life. And it's reminiscent of the story of Elijah and the widow's son. Do y'all remember? When Elijah stretches himself out over the boy, same thing happens here. Paul stretches himself out over the boy, he prays for him, and this boy is brought back to life. This boy's lack of attention, this boy is not paying attention to Paul. He is falling asleep. He is dozing off. His lack of attention, his slumber, and his death brought wakefulness and life to those who witnessed the miracle. Do you see, friends? Even in that tragedy, it gets the church's attention, and Paul is showing his attention by caring for the flock of God, even this little boy. And then comes the sermon where Paul preaches from 17 through the end of the chapter, He focuses attention on the health of the church and the glory of God. And so if I can keep your attention today, if if I can get and keep your attention today, I just want us to focus on these two charges that he's given us, which I think are representative of the whole chapter. Friends, for the glory of God and for the health of the church, pay attention to yourself. And for the glory of God and the health of the church, pay attention to all the flock. You with me? Pay attention to yourself pay attention to all the flock. So first, pay attention to yourself. This phrase this is just one word. The word used, pay attention, is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, beware of your self-righteousness. Beware of what's going on in your heart. Also, same word he uses when he says, beware of false prophets. Luke 17, we hear Jesus say this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Luke 21, we hear Jesus say this, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. 
the sense here that Paul is bringing to us is stay awake. Don't doze off, which is fascinating when juxtaposed to the story of Eutychus, right? Don't doze off. Stay awake. Pay attention. I think of Jesus in the garden when he's praying and he has his disciples and he says, stay up with me. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Stay with me. Stay awake. Pay attention. And notice here that Paul doesn't start by saying, pay attention to your prayers. Very important. He doesn't start by saying, pay attention to the gospel. What does he say first? He doesn't even say, pay attention to the church. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, self-examination is vital and essential to know the plague within our own hearts. We have to know what's going on to know our need for Jesus, right? And it brings up what Calvin famously started his institutes with, that knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self, and knowledge of self leads to knowledge of God. Now, that can be misconstrued all kinds of different ways if I say it just like that, but what that means is when we see God for who He really is as holy, it will reveal to us who we really are and our sin and our need for Him. And when we see ourselves and our profound need, it will drive us to know God better. Do you see that? Dane Ortland, who's the author of Gentle and Lowly, says in this passage, when Paul says, pay attention to yourselves and pay attention to the flock, he's saying that God's Word functions like a mirror to help us see ourselves, but it also functions like a window to see through and to see one another. Both a mirror and a window for us. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I don't know if they're listening to me right now. But I can tell you that when I send them into the living room to clean up their toys, this is what, they're either thickest thieves or they are cats and dogs, right? So I send them in to clean up their toys. Inevitably, one of them will come back and say, such and such isn't cleaning up their toys. And what is my response back? Worry about yourself. Mind your own business. Focus on what I've asked you to do. Don't worry about your brother or your sister, right? Isn't that the sense of what Paul is saying here? Worry about yourself. Pay attention to what's going on with you. And he models this. He practices what he preaches. Look with me at verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He pays attention to himself. Without boasting, what Paul does is he points to his own track record. He knows that these elders had not just heard what he taught, but they had actually seen the way he lives his life, right? There's consistency there. Look, this is how I've lived. And he points to three things. Let's keep reading. Serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials. He points to these three things. Why would he mention these three things? With the temptation towards arrogance and pride, Paul is keenly aware of his need for humility. With a temptation towards harshness and cold distance, he's keenly aware of tender care, right? Manifested in tears. Three times tears are mentioned in this passage. And aware of the temptation towards material comfort and prestige and success, Paul is keenly aware that ministry is full of trials and hardships, and opposition. Humility, tears, and trials. 
Friends, what we walk away from is here is, is understanding that what Paul is saying is Christian leadership is not about thinking of or presenting oneself as the one with all the answers. What does Paul do? He confesses his weakness as a commendation of Christ's work in him. He's commending Christ by saying, it's my weakness that's making any of this possible, my suffering. Calvin said this as well, people can never be rightly framed to obey Christ whose looks are lofty and whose hearts are proud. Listen to this, men cannot bear long a show of virtue. What is he saying? We are in no posture to really worship and obey God when we are looking down on others and putting ourselves in a position of pride to be evaluating others. He's saying, I've experienced humility, not because, hey, look at me, I'm humble, but he has been humbled by life experience, his tears and his trials. And so we watch ourselves, pay attention to yourselves, and not just those outward behaviors, those visible sin patterns that can and will destroy a church. That's true, right? But it's actually those internal motivations as well, those hidden things that can destroy a church just as much as those outward public things. Pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Jump with me to verse 24. Paul says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He knows that danger is ahead of him when he goes to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome, right? He's going to die for preaching the gospel. It's simply a matter of when and where. And so he takes an account of his own life. What, what, what value is my life right now? He takes an accounting of it. His sense of self, his well-being, his very breath is nothing. It's nothing to him. In a world of individualism, Paul models for us the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the rare jewel, jewel of Christian contentment. I don't, have to, I don't have to scratch and claw to be seen, to be valued, for my life to be protected. Elsewhere, Paul says this, I am crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, you are not individuals. You are, but you're not. We are covenant children of a crucified Christ. Our life is wrapped up in Him. Our life is found in Christ. We are crucified with Him. We are raised with Him. That's the reality of the Christian life. Look with me at verse 33. This is still Paul taking a look at himself. He's modeling for us what it means to take a look at ourselves. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And then he says, I supported myself with these hands. You can imagine him holding them up. With these hands, I supported myself. This wasn't about material gain for me. But he's aware of that temptation towards selfish gain, and he actively fought against it. He has a clear conscience. And so that phrase, I, I wanted no one's gold or silver or apparel, that means he's not seeking status. That's what that has to do, clothing and, and valuables. I wasn't looking for status. Because with status comes this constant pull to be someone, to influence, to climb the ladder, to be impressive. I must be seen is what he is fighting against. I don't have to be seen. I don't have to be rewarded. So friends, 
whether you were called to be an ordained minister of the gospel, an ordained servant of Christ, a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, or you are serving and leading in any of the wonderful ministries of our church, there's a question we have to ask ourselves, right? We have to stop and consider what's going on inside of me. What is motivating me in this service or this leadership? What is motivating me? Now here, friends, don't go the wrong direction with this. <laughs> I'm not telling you to navel gaze and then pull out of service and leadership, right? The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. We actually need you to lead and serve and step up. What we do want, though, is for our prayer to align with the psalmist. Anywhere, wherever you're serving and leading in the church, we want our prayers and our heart to align with the psalmist in 139. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pay attention to yourself. Continue serving, continue leading, but ask God to search you and have other people who are able to search you as well. Now, there's a word of caution here. How freeing, though, when we, when we take a look, like just like when I talk to my kids about paying attention to yourself, how freeing is it for us to stop being bent out of shape by what other people are doing, being, or believing? <laughs> that you can start at home. Now, Paul goes on to talk about wolves and people who would twist God's word. There is a point where elders, the shepherds of God, are actually called to protect the church, right? And have to worry about what is being taught and what is being done in the church. But where we start is at home. We start with our own hearts, and then we can protect the flock of God. And the word of caution I was, I was just about to give you guys is that when I say pay attention to yourself, it probably falls on pretty receptive ears. It's pretty easy in our culture for me to say pay attention to yourself. But what Scripture is not saying and what I am not saying is focus on yourself. Stay to yourself insulate yourself, isolate yourself, or buy into the zeitgeist of our age, which is to say, I am my own. I belong to myself. Do you hear me? There's an enormous difference between paying to attention to ourselves and focusing on ourselves. Nothing describes our spirit of the age like I am my own, I belong to myself. Alan Noble wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own, and he describes how what's interesting is that in seeking to focus on ourselves, we are actually unable to pay attention to ourselves, and we end up being a very hurting and very distracted people. Do you hear me? Our world is hurting and distracted. Even in focusing on ourselves, we can't pay attention to ourselves. And he lists off some ways that shows us the ways that we are hurting and the ways that we are distracted. Listen with me. Some drink. Some eat. Some binge watch TV. Some work more. Some work out more. Some cut themselves. Some immerse themselves in the news. Some immerse themselves in porn. Some play video games. Some shop. Some sleep. Some scroll endlessly through Instagram. Some post endlessly on Twitter. Some argue online. Some obsess about the environment. Some protest online. Some protest to be famous online. Some travel. Some attempt suicide. 
Some attempt self-improvement. Some abuse people. Some join extremist movements. Some join multi-level marketing programs. Some take up running. Some take up gambling. Some participate in extreme sports. Some participate in illicit romance. Some invest in self-care. Some invest in Bitcoin. Some discover a new identity. Some modify their bodies. Some modify their diets. Some embrace victimhood. Some embrace mocking victimhood. What is this plague within our hearts? What is this distraction? There are many reasons here, right? But many are starting to point to something that's a unique pathology of our sinful natures, our sinful hearts, that has really taken hold over the past 400 years in the way we think about what it means to be human, and it's called expressive individualism. He goes on to say this, These ills are grounded in a particular understanding of what it means to be human. We are each our own. We belong to ourselves. And if I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am and what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or even to assure me that I am okay. The freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify ourselves through identity crafting and expression. Let me unpack that a little bit. If I belong to myself, I've got to constantly justify my existence. Enter social media. (laughs) Where all my thoughts and feelings about everything must always be out there because people must know who I am. I must be unique. I must be seen. I must be heard. Friends, it's killing us. Focusing on ourselves without paying attention to ourselves. Friends, what Paul reminds us today is summarized well in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? Do you know it? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How freeing is that? That's true freedom. Being the captain of my own ship sounds like freedom, but it's not. I'm not my own. I don't have to determine who I am in this world. I know who I am. Christ gives me that. Look with me at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. You are not your own because you were bought into a flock that was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. A Savior who has acquitted you of all guilt. That is who we are. We belong to Christ and we belong to each other and God has given us a good gift that he's taken some sheep and said, I want you to be under shepherds. And the Holy Spirit here is gifting and raising up overseers. Now, there are two words in this text that might trip you up a little bit. At the beginning, he says he calls the elders of Ephesus to come to him. But then he calls them here overseers, elders presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian, right? 
Overseers, episkopos, that's where we get the word episcopal. Pastor is just a Latin translation of the word shepherd. What I need you to know is that in the New Testament church, in Scripture, these are all titles for the same person. It's not different people and different roles. It's all the shepherds of God. It's one person, one role. But notice that Ephesus has multiple. These elder presba bishops, whatever you want to call them, it's pastors, elders, the people who are in charge of guarding and protecting the church. They gather with him at Miletus, and he's charging them to care for the church. The Holy Spirit gifts and equips certain men for this role of pastor elder with deacons coming along to support. What's the point? The whole point is that they could care well for the flock of God. Having paid attention to ourselves, now we're going to talk about what it means to pay attention to all the flock. Not just our leaders, but one another. How can we pay attention to one another? What is this activity of care when he says to care for the flock of God? What does that actually look like? I want to point you to five key phrases, five key words in this sermon. Testify, declare, be alert, give, and weep. Testify, declare, be alert, give, and weep. So first, testify. Paul's, Paul bears witness to two things in this passage. He bears witness to repentance and faith in verse 21 and the gospel of the grace of God in verse 24. Notice he says repentance and faith. These two things go together, but they have to remain distinct in our minds. Does that make sense? Repentance is turning away from sin, but faith is turning to Christ. You can't have one without the other. We can turn away from sin and turn to Christ because this is the Savior that we have. This is the shepherd, the good shepherd that we have, who purged us of our sin, who suffered on our account, who acquitted us of all unrighteousness, who made us clean by His blood, who met the perfect standard of God's righteousness. This Jesus... He purchases for us resurrection by His blood. So we turn away from sin and we turn to this kind of Savior. That's our shepherd. That's our shepherd. This is our story. This is our song, right? If our faith does not turn away from sin and repent, then it's not faith in Christ. In the same way, if we live self-righteously as our own judge according to our own standard, but we don't need Jesus, then we've never actually repented. Faith and repentance go together, and this is what Paul testifies to. Is that what we share when we tell the story of our life? The testimony of repentance and faith, the full life, that that is the Christian life in a nutshell turning away from sin and turning to Christ. That's our story. That's our testimony. That's what we tell to the judge. This is the gospel, and we are the people of repentance and faith and the grace of God. So we testify to it. This is what God has done for us. And this is how we respond with repentance and faith. Next, we declare, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Notice that he indicates that declaring the whole counsel of God, that's the whole text of Scripture, that somehow that's a matter of life and death. And he's saying, I've presented it all to you, so your blood is not on my hands. He has a clear conscience because some will hear the good news of the gospel and will not enter the kingdom, right? Now, how do we, how do we as people of the church respond to that? Some of us are tempted to become little saviors, thinking that somehow Christ's work rests on our shoulders. And if people don't respond to the gospel, that's somehow on us. I want to free you from that burden. Paul, has Paul of all people, has preached to them, and they've not believed, right? It is not up to our strength or our efforts. But others of us are guilty of something far worse, and that's indifference. Maybe we have no concern about the lost souls around us, the souls of people who are not saved. And the message of the gospel has been replaced with an empty message of acceptance and encouragement. May we pay attention to each other by loving each other enough to declare all of God's word, not responsible for the outcome, but then also not ashamed of the message. So we testify to the repentance and faith and the grace of God. We declare the whole counsel of God. And that is the primary work of a shepherd elder, overseer, teaching the Word of God. It's what we have. It's our life. Next, be alert, verse 29 through 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And Paul is concerned about false teaching and people who would twist and deceive coming into the church and also arising up from within the church. And that fear actually proves to be valid. In Revelation chapter 2, we have the letter written to Ephesus. What do we hear in that letter to Ephesus? Listen to this. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Once again, interesting being juxtaposed to that story of Eutychus. Are we in danger of falling? We stay awake around sheep for two reasons, right? They are vulnerable, and we must stay awake. Wolves coming in from the outside and twisters arising up from the inside. And Jesus warned us about wolves in sheep's clothing, right? He warns us about that. Who, like Satan, can twist God's Word just enough for it to take on an entirely new meaning. So we're alert and attentive. Now, what, what is this not? This is not a call to constant suspicion of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not what this is. We must know, on the other hand, we must know the gospel well enough that we can spot a counterfeit when we see it not being suspicious of everyone around us, evaluating them all the time, but we must know the gospel well enough that we can call it when we see it. I recently discovered that on eBay, that when you buy a pair of shoes on eBay, a lot of times it'll come with an authenticity guarantee. And before they ship it to you, they actually ship it to someone else who's the authenticator. Why is that? There are lots of bootleg sneakers out there (laughs) that are not real. I have to confess, I own a pair of fake sneakers, because I would never spend that much on a pair of shoes. I'm not going to tell you what they are, right? Not proud of it, but I own a pair of fake sneakers. 
We, but someone, some of you could be able to see a pair of fake sneakers and know that is not the real thing because you know it well enough that you can call it what it is. That is the call to be aware, to be alert in the body of Christ to the twisting, to the teaching of God's Word in such a way that actually draws people away from the church, draws people away from Christ. If we know the real thing, then we will neither compromise nor demonize. What do I mean? Compromise, which is to say, well, everything goes, it's okay. Let's not make a big deal about it. But demonize would be then to demonize anyone who disagrees with us. Let's call anyone who disagrees with us is a wolf. That's not it either. What we can do is stand on the principles, declare the whole counsel of God, testify to the grace of Jesus and the gospel so that we know the counterfeit when we see it. Do you hear me, church? That's what it means to be alert, to know what's being taught, to care about what's being taught, to know who we are and what we believe in the body of Christ. So we testify, we declare, we're alert, we give. Look with me at verse 33. Actually, jump down to 35, the end there. It is more blessed to give than to receive. If it is tempting for those who are in leadership in the church of Christ to become wolves, and it is, one of the antidotes would be generosity and gratitude. Paying attention to ourselves, but then also giving. Giving, gratitude. We are people of repentance and faith and grace, and so we then give generosity of time. I'm not just talking money here. This is not just money. This is gifts and resources, giving to one another. We pay attention to one another by giving ourselves to one another, being present with one another, using our gifts in the body of Christ because it's better to give than to receive. We live, like I said earlier, we live in a consumer world, right? I want what I want, when I want, how I want, and I can typically make that choice based on anything in my life. Do we bring that into the church? I'm guilty. We want what we want, and we want it now, from Willy Wonka. I want it now. We, there's a better way, that it's, more, it's better to give than to receive. Another uh, pastor in another uh, church tradition here in town put it this way, If we consume and consume and consume and do not exercise, what's going to happen to us? We're going to grow unhealthy, right? But when we consume and then exercise, we're healthy. If we consume the gifts of the church, take and take and take, but we have been given gifts. (laughs) The Spirit, if you are a believer in this body of Christ, you have been given gifts and you are called to exercise those gifts. That's a healthy church. Not just to consume and consume and consume, but to consume and then grow. Consume and then give. So friends, I'm inviting you to exercise your gifts. It's better to give than to receive. That's one way that we pay attention to one another in the body of Christ. We love one another by giving the gifts that the Lord has given us for the blessing of the church and for the glory of God. So we pay attention to the flock by testifying, declaring, being alert, giving, and finally weeping. Look with me at verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. 
and they accompanied him to the ship. Remember that tears come up three times in this chapter. And Paul's tears in preaching are proven genuine when they're reciprocated, right? These elders are weeping over his departure. His words and his departure bring up grief. And grief is a normal and good response when people in a church have lived together, have labored together, prayed together, rejoiced together, and sorrowed together. What we see here is the affection and devotion of people who have followed Jesus side by side. They have followed Jesus side by side. Now, here's the thing, guys. You can avoid tears. You can avoid hurt in the church. It's actually pretty easy. All you have to do is not get close enough to anyone to trust them. Not allow yourself to need anyone. You won't be hurt. Your heart will be nice and locked away and safe. (laughs) And once again, I'm guilty. Because I know it's not good to be hurt. I've spoken with those of you who have been hurt by the church. Maybe not this one, maybe this one. The answer then is not to pull away from that affection and that devotion to Christ. Because why? We belong to one another. We are called to care. We are called to weep with one another. Or you can pull away. You cannot allow yourself to be trusted or trust anyone else, or known, or you can experience joy. What does that joy look like? Long hours together, serving, worshiping together. Hey, y'all remember when that kid fell out of the window in the middle of church? Wasn't that wild? Those memories together. Breaking bread together. Broken hearts together. Restored relationships together. I want to invite you to weep. The good, the bad, and the ugly in the body of Christ. John Fawcett was an orphan who supported himself as a tailor, and he was converted after reading John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and through the preaching of the Second Great Awakening. And he took a church in Waynesgate, England, and the parish there. And this is how the, the neighborhood and the church is described. They were farmers and shepherds, Poor as Job's turkey. I'm going to use that again. (laughs) Poor as Job's turkey. They were an uncouth lot, most of them pagans, cursed with vice and ignorance and wild tempers. Sounds like a lovely church. Sounds like every church. They could barely support John and his, his wife Mary. And a bigger church in London called him to come there, and he accepted So they packed everything up, and they were saying their farewells. The crowd was despondent and in tears. And Mary, his wife, said, I can't stand it. I don't know how to go. And John said the same thing. Me either. I've changed my mind. We're staying. And they unloaded the wagon and moved back in. And it was jubilation. It was pandemonium. The hymn that he wrote in response is a treasure for us about what it means to have affection and devotion within the body of Christ. I've sung it with Miss, B- Miss Beth and her friends at Ridgeland Point. At the end of their daily 10 a.m. devotional, they would cross arms, hold hands together, and sing it. I had the privilege of singing it just the other day in a wedding of two members here at Redeemer. The name of the hymn is Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. 
And I want you to just listen for a moment to a few stanzas of that hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each in expectation lives and longs to see the day. This is the affection and devotion of people who are attentive to Christ. People who are attentive to their need for Christ and thus are attentive to one another. So, Redeemer, pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention to yourself. We need you. We're united to you. So pay attention to yourself and pay attention to one another. Testify to the grace of God in your life. Tell that story. Declare all of God's word as we try to study it and live, live it out together. Be alert to dangers. Give your gifts to the church and to one another and weep with one another. Pay attention, friends, for the good of the church and for the glory of God in Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this good news. I do pray, Lord, that you would awaken us. Make us attentive. Make us alert. We confess, Lord, that we are very tempted to doze off. But, Lord, you are a good Savior who resurrects us even then, even in our slumber. Father, we love you. Thank you for these dear people. I pray, Lord, that you would write the truth of this word. Lord, on my heart, I need it desperately. And so I pray the same thing for them. Be with us, Lord. We love you. Thank you for your word. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.